0: I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without your freedom? Would you fight? I run, and you may live, at least for a little. And dying in your bed years from now would you be willing to trade all of the days up to this day for one chance just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they may take your life but they will never take your freedom Uh, that speech by William Wallace in Braveheart, for those of you who are wondering what the heck was just going on, um, has come to typify the allure of freedom that exists inside of us as people. Um, It embodies not only this Scottish freedom that he was fighting for, but the ethos of freedom as uh, as a being. And, And of those of us who see freedom as something good, see it as something to be had, something to be encountered. People who want to be free from things which hinder us. We watched the, well you guys might not have, but I'm a nerd, so I watched the Republican debate last night, and the word they throw around a lot is that of what makes a free country. What makes this free country great? And for most of us, when it comes to freedom, our first real interaction with it is actually our college years. We're no longer under the direct supervision of our parents, though we wish to still be under their money. Um, We're no longer under our old teachers, though we hope what they taught has stuck. And we're no longer under our old youth groups or teachers or local mentors if we had those in our old town. It's when you come to college or to a campus or to a new town as a young adult where you realize you have the freedom to do things which you once were not able to do both for better and for worse. It's where we, for the first time, can taste freedom. You're expected to be your own person. We find it. It's something that we desire to find freedom in college. But, what if I told you that everything you hoped for in freedom was a sham? What if I told you that your view and your thoughts on freedom were actually wrong. What if I told you that freedom was not free? We've all heard that adage. And we hear it in terms of freedom not being free with free acting as a price. But what if I told you that freedom wasn't free? That to be free was not freedom. You see, the reality of freedom will never be found in adventure Enlightenment, social reform, governmental policy, or financial stability. And, and me kind of voicing Paul's words here in Romans tonight are going to argue for something which makes absolutely no sense in regards to freedom, but something which, when rightly understood, makes complete sense because it takes into account humanity. It understands who we are better than what culture understands us as And here's what we're going to see tonight. And actually, um, I gave you guys a promo for this last week. This passage, uh, verses 15 through 23 of Romans chapter 6, is the core of our theme, learning to live. How do we learn to live as Christians? How do we learn to live as ultimately human? If you don't understand what this text is presenting, you will not know how to live. You might have a life, you might have breath and being, but it will be no life at all. What we're going to unpack tonight is this, the greatest human freedom is not freedom from all things, but slavery to the best thing. The greatest of all human freedoms is not freedom from all things, but slavery to the best thing. Let's pray. Lord, um, there, is, there are few things more alluring to the world objectively than the prospect of freedom. Freedom brings us peace. Freedom brings us joy. Freedom brings us comfort. Freedom brings us endurance. Freedom brings us enlightenment. And so, Lord, to lead by saying that the best form of freedom is actually slavery, we not only run into historical red flags in our own hearts, but we run into flags that we put up because we don't like the idea of being enslaved. So, God, I pray... um, that you speak from your word tonight to convict us and to show us uh, what you mean when you talk about freedom, what you mean when you talk about slavery. And Lord, we pray um, that you work miracles tonight in causing enslaved hearts to be purchased by someone else, to be bought into obedience of a good and great king. We pray this in your name. Amen. So... um, I think we largely, if you were to do a poll of what freedom means, a straw poll out on the streets, I think we'd find that we have a pretty unbiblical idea of what freedom is. Um, And not only unbiblical, I think we have an unrealistic, when we start breaking it down, we'll see that in a second, an unrealistic idea of what we think freedom is. Um, And we're going to fight for not only a realistic freedom, but a really realistic freedom, a biblical view of freedom. We're going to look at three things tonight. Um, Coming at it from culture's perspective, we're going to look at freedom's fallacy, the falsity of freedom. We're going to look at freedom's fruit. What is it that freedom, according to the world, bears? What is it that it provides you with? And lastly, we're going to look at freedom's facade. What's the false front? How does it look in our world? Um, First, we're going to examine freedom's fallacy. Now, again, this is the third time Paul's done this in Romans. Um, He's writing a letter, um, and unlike things we write now, you can't reply to his tweets, right? Romans was not being retweeted, quoted, and responded to um, by the audience. And so he is uh, assuming problems that people are going to raise, and he answers them. Last week, we saw... where he says, when sin increased, grace increased all the more. And he said, well, you dumb dums are probably going to say, should I go on sinning so that grace may increase? Can I make grace more beautiful by sinning more? And he's like, no, you cannot, for you have died to sin. And this last verse uh, we looked at last week, Paul says this, for sin will have no dominion over you, no lordship over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so Paul knows we're a people where if you give us an inch, we take a marathon. And and he says, you're no longer under the law. You're under grace. Sin has no dominion over you. So he assumes another way that we will try to generalize ways to sin in our life. And we see that in verses 15 and 16 of Romans 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means, right? That's the Greek preacher phrase that for some reason we're supposed to say. Meganoito. Um, By no means, not never, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So last week we saw this perspective of, does more sin make grace more beautiful? And the question he's assuming today um, is similar, but it comes from a different perspective. The logic is this. If sin no longer has dominion or lordship, which is kind of the root of that word, no longer has lordship over you, no longer has dominion over you, does that mean it's safe for you to interact with it? Right? Beforehand, we had a bunch of people show up early. It's great. I love it when people show up early to GCF. Um, we talk about weird things like, like uh, the crocodile hunter. We talked about uh, the crocodile hunter handling all these wild creatures. So if sin has its lordship removed, Is it like seeing we have a deadly serpent whose fangs are removed and now we should play with that? Now it's okay to play with that. And Paul's answer is a double negative again. Not never. May it never be. And I realize, again, sometimes the logic we don't understand. Should we sin because it has no lordship? Does that mean it's safe? And we think that I've never had that explicit thought. But let me ask of you, how many of you have been in a relationship How many of you desire to be in a relationship? And how many of you either in thought or in reality have thought, how far is too far? How far can I go with this person which is safe enough but not yet condemnable? Which is within the scope of sexual morality but outside Either sin, what the religious people would call it, or just blatant hedonism, which is what culture would call it. What's that line? I had that in my own relationship. And it's funny um, that the biblical commands concerning sexual ethics are not seek out the boundaries. It's flee. Flee from it. Don't see how far you can go towards it. Let me know when you're as far away from it as you can get. And yet in our hearts, you see, we say, well, if we're under the law, and if there's grace, why not see how close we can get? Why not see where we can tread the line? And this is just the most obvious picture of what becomes the reality in our life. When we live an exploratory lifestyle with boldness to sin, Paul's saying it doesn't communicate that you are the bold Steve Irwin wrestling with dangerous snakes because you think you could handle it it communicates something about you which shows uh, a mastery. It shows something deeply flawed. Look back at Romans uh, 6, 16. And pay attention to what he's saying here. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So two big statements here that we need to bear in mind. The first, Paul defines slavery. Okay, How would you define slavery? In your mind, what would you say slavery is? Now, we all can have a different array of what we think slavery is, so we all have a different array of definitions, but here Paul is defining what slavery is. He says slavery is obedience to something. You are a slave to the one whom you obey slaves to whom you obey. That broadens our definition of slavery, doesn't it? And he presses even further and he says there are two options of living, right? Paul did this last time when he talks about you're either an instrument of unrighteousness for evil or you're an instrument of righteousness for the glory of God. There's no third option. And he uses that same strategy here and he says you present yourself. Isn't that interesting? When we think of slavery, we think of someone coming and taking us. But the phrase here isn't that you've been taken. Slave is something where we're presenting ourselves. Two options. You either present yourself to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now think about this. This is something that as I was looking at this, it really, uh, I was stuck on it because it showed me something that I hadn't really seen before. He says, uh, obedient to sin, which leads to death. Right, we get that. Sin is bad, death is bad. We understand that. But wouldn't we assume that the second route would be the antithesis of it, right? So if we see sin, wouldn't we see uh, goodness on the other side? If we see death, wouldn't we assume life on the other side? Because Paul works in antitheticals. He's telling us what's the opposite of this, because that's what Jesus is. Jesus is opposite Adam. In Adam, you got death. In Jesus, you got life. But he says this, the opposite of sin is to present yourself to obedience. The opposite to death is to reap righteousness. Isn't that, have you thought about that? And he's saying here, remember what happened to present yourself is to obey someone. So he's literally saying you are to either obey disobedience, which leads to death, or you obey obedience. At this point, it's vague. What does he mean by obey obedience? But that's what he's saying. You obey obedience and you get righteousness, which is better than life. And so that helps us know what sin is. Sin isn't a thing that we just walk around life hoping not to find. It's not a disease we walk around life hoping not to get. It's not something that one day we accidentally find in our pocket. Sin is a posture of disobedience. And in Romans 1, Paul defines that as what? Coming out of the womb, not seeing the hallelujah course. The moment you see God's creation, you ought to believe in him. And to not to believe in him is to disobey him. And we are in sin. And he's saying you will either obey disobedience and die, or you will obey obedience and live. You see, this gets at the fallacy of freedom because when we think of freedom, we think only in terms of absolute freedom. Being free from everything, being free from all things. But according to Paul, we are never truly free in that sense of freedom. We're never truly free. We are either obeying disobedience, which is outside of us, or we're obeying obedience, which is outside of us. He says the only option for you to live is as slaves, is as one who is obeying something else. Absolute freedom, a cultural view of freedom from all things, is not attractive to Paul, and it shouldn't be attractive to you either. Why? It sounds so good to be free from all things. Burdens, debt, curses limitations all of that sounds good but let me give you an example you know do you know who has the most freedom in the world right now let me give you a hint he's on TV all the time right now it's not a movie star it's not a news anchor it's not an athlete it's not even a presidential candidate it's not even your grandma The person who has the most absolute freedom right now is a European refugee hiding under a bridge in Paris. For he has no land to whom he is obligated. He has no master to whom he ought to obey. He has no debt to whom he should pay. He has no allegiance to whom he should yield. He has no job to which he is to show. He has no school to which he is obligated. And he has the time and the ability to pursue whatever he wants, where he wants, without consequence unless imposed by himself. Now it doesn't take a degree from the University of Montana to realize that is no freedom. And yet, find me a man with more freedom. That is not life, but find me a man with less things bearing on his life. You see, freedom from all things is a sham. It's a non-life. It sounds good, but it's empty, it's hollow, and it's vain. And while that man may be free on the surface... And while even we may see even a powerful movie star or sports celebrity who is free on the surface, Paul says, not him, not her, not anyone is free. You are obeying something. You're obeying sin or you are obeying obedience. At this point, we don't know what this obedience is. Paul's going to get there. But in your own life, what is it that you seek to obey? If Paul is correct, and we can assume he is because he's writing God's word, we are all following something. And more than following, we are all responding to the counsel and command of something. If we were to watch your life for a day, who would we say is giving you orders? Who would we say is obligating your actions and your affections? Because freedom is a fallacy. Moving on, Paul is now going to show us freedom's fruit. Freedom doesn't exist. It can't exist. Absolute freedom is a sham. And now he's going to say, if you think you have freedom, let me show you what that will produce. We see this in Romans 6, 17 through 19. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness i'm speaking in her- human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you were once present just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification so paul's goal here is actually he's just rehashing what we saw last week right last week he says don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, instead present them as righteousness. And here we see, do not present, you presented your members as slaves to impurity, now present your members to slaves as righteousness. Because this is something Paul wants to emphasize because we suck at it. We're not good at it. And he's continuing to unpack slavery here, and he's helping us what it means to obey something. And look back at verse 17. Really important phrase, right? He's talking about being a slave, he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become, they're right, those are two means. You've been transferred from means one into means two. Um, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So I, w- I want us to pay attention to that. Slavery is bad. We get that, right? People should be set free from slavery, specifically slavery to sin. What caused this person to be freed? Look at verse 17. Was it the great liberator coming through with a battering ram, beating down the gates, and going Liam Neeson on everybody? It says, You were once slaves to sin, but you have become obedient. From the heart. What sets you free from slavery to sin? If that leads to death, no one likes death, okay? Whether you in, you're in here and you believe in sin and goodness or not, we can objectively say there's not anybody from any religion anywhere who loves death. That's why we celebrate Halloween. It makes light of it. It makes it something tangible where we can see it and we can interact with it and we can say it's okay, it's going to happen to us all while we're still worried about it. And so how are you freed from that death? Not through money, not through degrees, not through relationships, not through adventure, not through sex, not through joys, not through movies, through obedience is what it says. Obedience to what? That's important. I can obey a lot of things. What's the obedience that saves me? Romans six eighteen. the next verse he says, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Death, sin, obedience to obedience is obedience to righteousness. Okay, what is Paul saying here? Is anybody confused yet? Obedience, righteousness, slavery, slavery to righteousness, slavery to sin, absolute freedom. Tyler was talking about a lot of weird things right now. And the people reading this letter from Paul are like, uh-huh, they make no sense. It was like me sitting in stats class once, um, right before I dropped it because I was doing this too much. Um, And so he's going to say this. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's giving us an explanation here. He's using an analogy of slavery because he's saying this is the closest you can come to really understanding what's happening in your conversion. I'm applying the broadest human category to you so that you might be able to simply understand at the lowest level what your life before me Jesus was, and what your life after Jesus was. And this is an important analogy here. There, there, there is a reason that Christianity has long been the engine of abolitionist movements against slavery on different continents, in different languages, in different social constructs, throughout the ages. And it's because if anyone knows slavery it's people who know this text and if anyone knows the joy of freedom it's people who have been brought from slavery to sin into the righteousness of Jesus and so Paul is using this because it's real, but he's saying there are two things we'll never know. He's implying it in this text. You have natural limitations. There are things we won't know this side of the earth. We won't know how Verizon can automatically update things on my phone magically. I don't know how it works. It blows my mind. Um, it may be simple, but that's just me. We won't know that. We probably, at this rate, we won't know how to cure the cold. But those things are all insignificant to what Paul is saying here. He was saying, you will never know the depth of your sin against a perfect God. You will never understand. You may look, just this weekend in our own church, this is how messy it is, there was a four-year-old girl who was potentially sexually assaulted by her uh, not-involved father's uh, younger brother. That riles us up, doesn't it? We see that four-year-old as pure and innocent, and that should not happen to a four-year-old and yet, the degree of difference between our sin and a holy God is exponentially more, and we cannot know it here on this earth. We cannot know it while in our sinful bodies. We cannot know the depths of our sin. We cannot know our, the nastiness of our rebellion towards God. You may be disgusted at sin by moments of God's grace, but you will never understand the depth of sin to God. You are not granted that perspective here. And secondly, we will never know the human heart. We'll never know it on a romantic level, we'll never know it at a social level, and we will certainly never know it at a redemptive level. You see, the gospel gives us great clarity on ourselves, but not until we're in heaven will we ever truly understand the mystery of a bent, sinful heart. And this is what leads Paul to say this, in Romans six nineteen, uh, Excuse me. What do I want to say here? Um, he will never understand uh, our sinful hearts. Yeah, yeah. And so he says this. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Okay, so we get death. Death is bad, but we can all die our own death, right? But you see what he said there. What does a heart enslaved to sin produce? What is its fruit? Death is the ultimate fruit, but it says it produces lawlessness unto lawlessness. That's option A of our hearts, not goodnessness unto not goodnessness. You produce filth unto filth. I just wrote a blog which came out today and it gets at this problem. Um, This this problem being the the self-expression based society which equates freedom, belonging, and peace with your ability to be yourself. What is the best thing you can be according to this world? Yourself. Anything that represses that self, anything that speaks to that self, anything that limits that self is the enemy of freedom and therefore the enemy of humanity. But what Paul is saying, the worst thing you can give to yourself is yourself. The worst thing for the world is for the world to encounter Tyler unfiltered. For instance, um, I reference in the piece Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy is a moron. Um, who's somehow playing in the NFL, uh, which, as a big NFL fan, it it irks me, uh, because he shouldn't be there. Uh, He should be in jail, Um, and we shouldn't be, I say we as I have say in the NFL, he shouldn't be there. Uh, Because two years ago, he threw his girlfriend, then-girlfriend, onto his bed, threatened to kill her when his bed happened to be full of assault rifles. Um, So it proved no idle threat. Um, He was suspended then, Four year from the NFL and during his suspension he did what idiots do and he made a rap video. Uh, In this rap video equipped with guys shooting off guns, snorting crack off strippers and fire and Hot Wheels, um, his chorus of his rap song was something like, I'm just gonna be me, let me be me, I'm not gonna get played again. He just wants to be himself. What happens if we're broken? What happens if our self is an evil person? What happens if our self has no handle on what is good and what is bad? What happens if our self only desires evil? And while none of us in here might be as awful as you view yourself, you're not Greg Hardy, you're not Adolf Hitler, but it's not because you are good. Instead, if you are one who is a slave to sin and you have not committed the atrocities of Greg Hardy nor led a worldwide genocide like Hitler, it's simply because God is gracious in restraining the evil that you would be doing without his hand in your life for there, no, there, there is no known end to the human heart. The reason you consider yourself a good person as an unbeliever or even a good person as a believer isn't because you're moral. It's because God is limiting your lawlessness. It's because God is restraining the wicked which your heart desires most. You see, our hearts are broken. Look at how the Bible describes your heart. Okay, don't look at me. Everyone, your grandma thinks your heart is pure. Jesus thinks your heart is broken. Look at how the Bible refers to your heart in Ephesians 2. For those who are slaves of sin, Ephesians 2 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, obeying, conceding to, submitting under the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Take that to the Davidson Honors College on your resume. Even more so, I find this verse to be really striking last week. We didn't dive into it because we're going to talk about it more this week, but look at uh, what Paul says in Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your body to make you obey its passions. How does sin reign? You don't say, hey sin, you can have authority in my life. What does sin do? It makes you obey. It overwhelms you. It overtakes you. And look at that. It's passions. Sin is not leading you to what you want to do. Sin is leading you to do what it wants you to do. For Satan wants to pull you not only away from God, but he wants you to be disassociated even with yourself. Sin forcibly has proved to be the master of anyone who shows obedience to sin. Our hearts are enslaved to another. This is why Paul says this good news, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. You see, we don't need to only be set free from sin. We need to be made obedient from our hearts. This is why the gospel is good. Because no cultural promises, no political agendas can account for the problem of your heart. They can get at your actions. They can restrain them. They can modify your behaviors. But if our hearts desire evil, it might not show on the outside in the ways others have shown, but it will lead to death and it will be beneficial to no one. Paul continues to develop his tunis here. He says, you may obey sin, which leads to death and lawlessness unto lawlessness. Or you may obey obedience, which leads to righteousness unto sanctification, which is what he said, which is change and holiness unto Christ. Now there are people in here right now who might say, you know what, I'm completely free and I'm freely disagreeing with you. I'm freely disagreeing with you. I'm freely doing exactly what I want to do. Sin is not my Lord lawlessness is not my master. I'm not a bad person, and I don't need Jesus in order to know that. And this is tonight's final point. Freedom's facade, its false front. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6:20 20 through 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, actually, I want to stop there, just through 21, right now. Paul uses this phrase. He says, you were free in regards to righteousness. That means two things here. Um, It says, one, you were free to choose righteousness. Righteousness is life. Righteousness is Christ. Righteousness is freedom from judgment. Righteousness is having peace with God, being made right with Jesus he says, you were free to that. You are absolutely free to choose righteousness. But in that same phrase, free in regards to righteousness, he's also saying, you were free from the realm of righteousness because you were unable to choose it. You were free from it because it would bear no influence on you. You had no access to righteousness, and it had no claim over you. In the same way, Canada cannot claim for me to pay its taxes because I'm not under it, and I'm free from it. And this is freedom's facade. We don't understand what it means to be free. Jonathan Edwards gave this, he's an a, a, a American pastor um, a few hundred years ago, and he gives this great illustration of freedom, which is biblical, informed, and helps us understand things. He says, say there are two prisoners, both of whom have committed a grievous crime against a king, and both of whom who have been locked in cells behind walls, doors, and bars. The first prisoner receives a summons from the king, and the king says, your crimes will be forgiven, And you may be freed from your punishment if you come and you prostrate yourself before me and pay homage to me. And this prisoner jumps up and he desires to do this with the whole of his heart for it is better to obey this king than to spend the rest of his life in this chamber. And he runs, but he's caught by his chains. And he can't go anywhere. And he looks and even if he were to break those chains, he can't break the bars And if he broke the bars, he can't break the wall. And if he broke the wall, he can't get past the guards. You see, this prisoner has a moral ability. He desires to be able to do something. And yet he is physically unable to do so. He's restrained. There are natural things blocking him from responding to it. He has a natural inability for he's bound in a physical way. And we understand that. That man's not free. He's not free at all. He's free to choose but he's not free to respond. Then take the other prisoner. He receives the same call from facing the same sin, but instead, the king has come. He sent the guards away. He's opened the first wall. He's removed the bars. He's unshackled his chains. And he says, you may be free and forgiven if you pay homage to me and you submit to me. This man has physical and natural ability out the door. He can get up, he can walk away, he can be free. But what if this prisoner is repulsed by this idea? He says, there is no way I will ever obey you. He stays in that cell. He's free, but he's not free. Edwards says of this man, He says, his rooted, strong pride and malice have perfect power over him, and as it were, bind him by binding his heart. The opposition of his heart has mastery over him. Edwards goes on to say that no bars or chains can match the bondage of a sinner's heart. You see, we are not the first sinner physically unable to respond. We're the second sinner, enslaved to sin and trapped by our own heart, refusing to respond to God's call for goodness. 2 Peter 2:19 Peter describes false prophets and he says this, for they promise freedom. Isn't that the promise of the world? Be free. Have a lot of sex. Be free. Climb every mountain. Be free. Get a bunch of scholarships. Be free. Get a job that pays. Be free. Enlighten yourself. Be free. Find knowledge. But you, like the man in this text, are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You are enslaved by your own desires. You may think you are free, you may find the thrill of freedom, but you are unable to walk through those doors because you are obedient to a sin which is crippling. You are enslaved in your own prison. Your hearts have enslaved you and you are puppets and made miserable of your own might and your disobedient heart. That is our state as slaves to sin. And we cannot change it because we don't want to be changed. But Jesus, Jesus came not only to blow up the prison And remove the chains. But he came to make us obedient from the heart according to the standard of the gospel which was delivered to us. Jesus did more than remove your chains. He removed your own heart. He gave you what he says in Jeremiah. He took your heart of stone which could not obey and would not obey the clarion call of a good king. And he gave you a heart of flesh. Able for the first time, not only to see freedom and conceptually understand it, but to know it and experience it. He became the prisoner on the cross. Our cell was able to be emptied of our miserable bodies only because he chose to fill it instead. And this is the result of that freedom which comes in Christ. 6 verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get is not death. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Eternal life sounds good. What does it mean to be enslaved to God? There are a bunch of people who want God for eternal life but refuse to be slaves to him but that's not an option. There are people who desire all the benefits of being a Christian without the master, which is required for the Christian, without the presenting yourself as a slave to God, without obeying the obedience that God has given us in his word. But let me show you why this is the best news about freedom. There have been few things which promote the desire for freedom and touted as the triumph of the human spirit than Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It immediately declared all slaves in rebelling states to be free persons, and that means at that moment, those men were no longer property of an owner, but they were free men. However, this declaration was limited. The first, these prisoners, though they are declared free, they're still captive. They're still held by men who wish to use them for their own benefit. More so, and this is what's important, they were set free to nothing. They were set free to nothing. Edna Green Medford is a Lincoln historian and has written about the, how uh, the reaction of the blacks in the southern states was initially elation but they realized that this declaration didn't do enough. And this is what she says. They believed that the document, and consequently Lincoln as the author, had tacitly promised them equality and opportunity of unrestricted citizenship. A chance to claim their birthright after more than 200 years of denial. You see, while these men were declared free, they still had to become free from their masters. And if they managed to be one of the few who escaped their masters and were deemed free by the government, they realized they were men with no land. They realized they were men who didn't belong. They didn't belong to the U.S. government. And they realized that freedom without citizenship is no freedom at all. Freedom without a government is no freedom at all. You see, the slaves were free but they were not made citizens. The slaves were free to have no rights and no home. Free from their wicked masters, but free from any sense of belonging. You see, Jesus is the greater abolitionist, for he has set us free to be his subject. He has not only removed the chains and the former masters, but he has established himself as our new master. And there is no better place for a subject to be than in the kingdom of a good king. For that king's power, his goodness, and his might is set to rule, reign, and steward his people for his glory and their flourishing. For the goodness, from the goodness of our King comes the cadence of our lives. And in this obedience, this obedience to righteousness, this obedience to life, this obedience to Christ, in that do we find true freedom. For we know life subject to the good King. Because we have been set free according to the standard of ultimate goodness. And though we are slaves to Christ, we are the freest of all men. For Galatians 5.1 says this, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 11 verses 28 and 29. Come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. See, we always think of yoke as this nice thing but you're being burdened for work to Jesus. Take my yoke, for my burden is easy. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Additionally, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil That moral inability to respond to God's goodness is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. How do you view your life? Do you see freedom as being led chiefly and ultimately by your desires? Because the Bible says your desires are not your desires. Your desires are the desire of sin to lead you to death. And the best thing about sin is it's the world's greatest numbing agent. And you will go to the grave not knowing its pain until you stand before God and realize you have a faulty master. If that is you, I invite you to look at the last verse, one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, Romans 6:23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We sang a song before we started, look and see our God. If you are enslaved to sin, you will not find freedom in any source except for God. And you will find death in everything that is not his free gift. For the rest of you, this passage is more of a freedom speech than William Wallace could ever give. It calls us to to fight not for the sense of freedom, but for the purpose of freedom. Will you fight to be a slave to Jesus? Will you fight to submit your life, your desires, and your passions to the good King who has freed us and called us out of a dungeon and reformed our heart to make it obedience to that which is only good? Will you offer yourself to Jesus, so that you will be changed into him. If you are not being changed to look like Jesus, to desire Jesus, and to know Jesus, I doubt you have been freed by my Jesus. So let us go and let us present ourselves to obedience, ending in righteousness, leading to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, what a, uh, what a hard thing to understand that the best freedom we have, that the most joy we can merit is not to live for ourselves, is not to find ourselves, is not even to be ourself. The greatest joy and joy in the truest sense of the word, joy not in this thing where we say joy but we mean something else, but joy with all of the thrill and the desire and the capacity that we see in that word, we find in submitting ourselves as slaves to your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you have freed our hearts, that we were once the prisoner, repulsed at the idea of serving you. And you came and you struck our heart with the cord of the cross and resonated inside of it with the mercy which made us new so that we can know you and serve you. God, help us realize our master. Help us serve our master. Help us be sanctified by our master so that we may spend eternity with him, loving him and worshiping him. We pray this in your name, amen.